0: Well, if you will, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2? Glad that you're with us this morning. I want to give you a, a little overview about where we're going this morning as, uh, as we're going to be talking about gift giving. And, uh, and just so you know, uh, Christmas is actually about the gifts, it is actually about the kids' gifts, kids, so that's good news. Uh, it is about the gifts, um, but uh, I want to talk about this morning uh, as we begin the packaging. The packaging matters, and, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to touch base there first. We're going to talk about how the gift comes wrapped, uh, and secondly, we're going to talk about the gift that we find um, in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. There's actually two gifts uh, that we see there. Uh, we're going to see the gift of a king who takes, and we're going to see the gift of a king who gives and how they contrast uh, one another. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the, the gift of insight. We're going to look at um, uh, Uh, A spiritual picture of the incarnation as God sort of takes back the curtain and allows us to see uh, spiritually what's going on with the birth of Christ. And then lastly, in our time of communion together this morning, we're going to talk about the gift received. How do we receive that gift? And the importance of understanding receiving comes before giving. You won't know how to give good gifts until you've received a good gift. And so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to dive right in and talk about packaging. Now, uh, in my house, uh, we don't do a whole lot of gifts at Christmas time. We don't do a large number of gifts, and uh, we don't do a whole lot of like, extravagant kind of gifts. You know, our gifts are, are generally pretty simple, pretty humble, but uh, each person gets four gifts. And, uh, and, and the gifts follow these lines. Something that they want, something that they need, something that they'll wear, and something that they'll read. So just four gifts, but what we lack uh, in, in number of gifts or in extravagance of gifts, uh, we, can, we make up for in packaging. Um, every year, I, I search for just the right wrapping paper, and it needs to be like three or four different complementary rolls of wrapping paper. Uh, this year, I found what I thought was the greatest wrapping paper ever, and it, it came, and it didn't have lines on the back of it, and so my wife hates it, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but, it, but, but it's beautiful on the outside. Anyway, uh, we, we take a lot of time with, with the gift wrapping. And my wife does a, a beautiful job of taking a gift and just, you know, every line is cut straight and every fold and, and, and seam is, is, is perfect and it's taped and then it's, you know, the, the ribbons or the bows and everything that goes into wrapping this gift to put underneath the tree. And wrapping matters. I'm like, I don't know, raise your hand if you at Christmas time just buy something from the store and just throw it under the tree without wrapping it okay. We're going to have a class afterwards. All right. But, but, but generally, we don't do that, right? Like, because it's fun to unwrap, right? And we, we love to see the joy in other people's faces as they get to unwrap. But there's also something in the wrapping of a gift. And, and we might look at that and say, that's kind of wasteful, if you think about it. Like, how much of, of that wrapping paper is just going to end up in the garbage? It's wasteful, Right? Uh, and, and think about terms of time my wife will take 10 or 15 minutes to wrap a gift and my kids will unwrap it in less than 15 seconds Wait, isn't that a waste of time and, and the answer is well no see the, the gift matters the gift is important we want the person to, to receive the gift and know that they're loved but, but even the wrapping communicates in a tangible way I love you like I care like I want you to have a not just a gift, I want you to have a beautiful gift, right? We convey love even through the wrapping. Now, what we have in Scripture, we have the, 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 this revelation. We have this the God of the universe who says, I want you to know me. Like, the God of the universe wants you to know him, and so he, he's inscripturated his word. Like, we, we have this, and, and, and when we come to the, to the word of God, what we find in there, it's not boring history, it's not mundane fact, it's not just like plain truth. What we find is something alive, and something vibrant, and something beautiful. And God uses all these things throughout scripture to sort of wrap it and, and embellish it and, and adorn his word through language. And he uses, you know, he uses metaphors and, and he uses uh, images like you know, rocks and trees and mountains and valleys and rainbows and, and animals, like it's all over this place because, because God wants to communicate, yeah, who he is, but he wants to do it in a beautiful way, right? Um, this is our, our fourth week in this, this Advent series. And uh, uh, the the name of the the series is uh, Genes, Dreams, Prophets, and Kings. And each one of those things, you know, corresponds to uh, a week of Advent, right? Now, um, in Scripture, we see not only does God use, you know, things like rocks and trees and stuff, God actually uses numbers. He uses math to some degree. When you see numbers in Scripture, you actually, usually they're connected with, with, a, with a deeper truth. So when you see the number one, for instance, generally it's connected to unity. When you see the number two, generally it's connected to, to witness, to verification of truth. The three points to divine community, Father, Son, Spirit. The number seven points to, to perfection, to completeness, and to rest. The number twelve points to, to divine government. Twelve tribes, right? Twelve apostles. But In this series so far, if you've been traveling along with us, have you noticed a number reoccurring? Anybody notice it? So three weeks ago, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. And in the genealogy of Jesus, there are women that are listed there. Now from a patriarchal society, that's that's pretty different. There are five mothers that are talked about in the genealogy of Jesus, and each one of those mothers has a story, and they have a past, and sometimes it's a difficult one or a hard one. Uh, these are women who have, who have been sinned against or have sinned uh, themselves, and yet God is redeeming their story, and they get to take part in, in what God is doing in bringing about his son into the world. Five women, five redemptive stories that point towards hope. Two weeks ago, we looked at the dreams there are five times in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 where God reveals truth through these divine dreams while people were sleeping. He, he, he told them where to go. He told them what to do. Four of those dreams were given to Joseph, and, and, and the, the thrust of those dreams was God telling Joseph to do something very, very difficult, and yet he knew that for the joy set before him, he would do it. Five dreams that point to joy. Last week, we looked at the prophecies of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. There's five. Five prophecies where Matthew goes back into the Old Testament and he brings out, uh, out of the past, these things that the prophets had said about who this Jesus would be and what he would bring about. And that he would come first and establish peace between us and God. But, but he'll come again and there'll be an everlasting uh, peace between us and one another. Peace. Prophecies that point to peace. Five of them. In Scripture, when you, when you see the number five, five is, is representative of Grace. It's grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Anybody getting what you don't deserve for Christmas? It's getting what you don't deserve. It's the gift of God, the gift of redemption that leads to hope, the gift of purpose that leads to joy, the gift of of, of knowing what's going to happen that leads to peace. You see, the, the first three weeks, it's all been about the wrapping, It's all been about the bows and the ribbons, about the the adornment, and so today we're going to talk about the gift itself, and the gift itself is is two kings. So if you will, read with me Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. There's two kings that we see in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and Matthew wants to point to Jesus, and he says, he's the king that's coming. He points to Jesus and says, this is the Christ. Just so you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He's the Christ Christ. He's the anointed one. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. This goes back to the practice of of, uh, uh, pointing to someone and God uh, declaring that this individual was his selected choice for leadership. For kingship, and they were anointed with oil, oil poured on their head. So Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. Uh, he's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one that, uh, that, that David uh, was, was promised that from someone from his line would always sit on his throne. Like, he's the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. He's the king that's coming. But there's a king that's here, and that's Herod. There's a sitting king that needs to be supplanted. Herod the Great uh, ruled all of Palestine during this time. Uh, He ruled underneath the Roman uh, Empire. He ruled by the authority of the Roman Empire. Uh, Herod the Great was known as uh, kind of a vicious guy. One of the Caesars said that it was better to be a dog in Herod's house than a son. Um, It's believed that he actually had members of his family killed because he thought they were trying to uh, steal his throne. Uh, Herod was known for for two things. He was known for taxation. He taxed his people to the limits. He taxed them into starvation. He taxed them to death. Herod uh, built all sorts of of, of, of monuments around uh, Palestine from uh, the rebuilding of the, the, the temple which took a really long time and he poured a ton of money into rebuilding this temple and it's too adornment and all of that. Um, There's a a place called uh, Masada that he built this this, uh, big uh, palace for himself. All over Palestine, if you were to go visit it today, you'll see the ruins of the things that he built. He built that by people's taxes. He taxed them to death. He also made them work to death because in order to create these big monuments to his great name, He forced people to labor and people lived and they died building up his great name. He taxed people to death and he worked people to death. He's a king that takes. Now, he's a gift. He's a gift from God. And we would look at that like, why would we look at a guy named Herod as a gift from God. If you keep reading, what you find out here is he, he asks the, the magi who come to him looking for, for this Messiah, he asks them, go and find him and then tell me where he's at so I can come and worship him. He lies. He wants to destroy him. And when the magi don't come back and report where he is, he goes ahead and, and he sends troops into Bethlehem and he kills all the firstborn or male sons under the age of two. He's a murderer. He's a liar and he's a murderer. He's he's taxing people to death. He's making them work to death. Like, you look at this individual, and how could we say, this guy is a gift from God? Well, let me show you. Romans 13, Paul writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every authority that's ever been appointed behind him is God appointing him. God put Herod in a power and in authority. Peter says something similar, uh, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. Every human authority that is put into power has been placed there by God, even the evil ones. And we look at that and we say, why? Why would we do that? The answer is found back in Matthew 2. Look at verse 3 with me again. It says this. It says, When Herod the, the king heard this, he was troubled. So uh, the magi come to, to, to looking for this king. They knock on Herod's door, and they say, uh, we're looking for the guy who's been born king of the Jews. And Herod's saying to himself, well, I'm the king of the Jews, and I don't like competition. So he's troubled. But, but it's the next part It's the next part. It says uh, this, that all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Why is Jerusalem troubled? Why are these Jewish people troubled? Like, they've been waiting for the Messiah. Why are they troubled? They're, They're living under the reign and rule of this King Herod who is taxing them to death and making them work to death. And here's the promise or at least the whisper of a new king, a Messiah. How come they're troubled? Well, they're troubled because we as human beings continually gravitate toward the wrong kind of king. We continually want the wrong kind of king. This goes back to their forefathers. Many, many years before this, First Samuel 8, Before the nation of Israel was taken off into captivity, they had kings. Before they had kings, though, they were a theocracy. When God rescued them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, they were ruled over by God. There were judges that sort of uh, facilitated certain things, but it was a theocracy. God was king until 1 Samuel 8, where the elders of Israel go to Samuel, and they say, we want you to give us a king like the nations around us have. We want a king. We want a human king like everybody else has. And so Samuel, he goes to God and he prays and God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as God over them. And so I'm gonna give them what they want. They have me, but I'm gonna give them what they want. But I want you to tell them what they're gonna get out of it. And so read with me 1 Samuel. 8, beginning in verse uh, 11, it says this. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the 10th of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. What is he saying? He will take, 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 he will take. By the way, six uh, points to sin because it's one short of perfection. It's this picture of, of falling short. Six times, take. This is what a king will do to you. He will take, and he will take, and he will take. And what is the response of the people? But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Don't care. We don't care. Given the choice between God and human authority, we will take the human authority, even though he'll take, and he'll take See, Herod is is representative of the king that takes. But, you see, that's not where it started. It started actually back in Genesis 3, where our first parents, they lived in the presence of God. Without sin, without death, without sorrow, without pain, they lived in the presence of God. There was no shame. There was no suffering. There was no guilt. They lived in the presence of God. And yet along comes a liar who says to them, You don't need to be under his authority. You can be God's. You can be in control. And so they rebelled and they rejected. They disbelieved and they disobeyed and they took that fruit and they ate it. And since then, humanity has been languishing under sin and death and we over and over and over again choose the wrong kinds of kings. We choose kings that will take. And so you ask the question, why is this a gift to us? The gift is simply this. It's the gift of contrast. You see, without darkness, you can't understand light. Without pain, you can't understand joy. Right? Without the negative things of life, you can't understand or appreciate the positive things of life. And here God is he's holding up this King Herod, the king that takes and he takes and he takes, and he's saying, this is what you've chosen, but I'm bringing you something else. And see, by contrast, when you can see the, the choices that you've made, and see the, the ways that we've, 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 we've chosen wrong. Can we see a better option and choose that instead? Herod's the gift of a king that takes, so it will choose the gift of a king who gives. You think about the incarnation, what we've, what we've seen here in Matthew chapter one and two over the last three weeks is that God is giving himself to Humanity. God is taking on flesh, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And so here's this virgin who is pregnant, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, fully human, fully divine, intertwined into one, God giving himself to us. I was reading uh, earlier this week a, a book by N.T. Wright called uh, The God Who Became King. And one of the things that he points out is he looks at our creeds, if you've, ever, if you've ever studied the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, these, these things that we hold as foundational as Christians, when you look at the creeds, what you discover is that they, they talk about the birth of Jesus, and they jump to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but they, they don't deal with the life of Jesus. And yet, we have four Gospels that deal with the life of Jesus, and how He lived His life matters. It had to be holy, it had to be perfect, it had to be complete, because it's sacrificed on behalf of us. He lives the life we can't live. But see, he lives a life of giving. Look at some of the things that that, that Jesus said. He said, come to me all who who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He he says, I wanna give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He says, "I, I came to give knowledge of salvation. I wanna give light to those who sit in darkness. I wanna give my Holy Spirit to anybody who asks. I wanna give justice to the elect. I wanna give wisdom to people that that can't be contradicted. I wanna give a new commandment, a new law, love. I wanna give eternal life. I wanna give you my peace. And I love what he says in, in Mark 10, I have come not to be served but to serve and to what? Give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to give my life for you. He's a king that gives. He gives everything. He's the king that gives. Why? Because he's the king that loves. For John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Gave. We see a little later in John 15 that that Jesus says no greater love as someone than this. that They lay down their life for another. Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we have a God who gives because we have a God who loves. We have a God who loves. And and if given the choice between, between a God or a king that takes, would you really choose the one who takes or would you choose the one who gives? And yet over and over again, humanity has shown that we will choose the one who takes. At Christmas time, we're confronted with this other king, a new king, a king who gives because he's a king who loves. I want to look at another gift, though, and it's the gift of revelation. It's the gift of insight, something that that Matthew chapter 2 touches on, just gives us a glimpse. With the wise men, it says uh, it says this, uh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What did they see in the sky? So uh, the magi or these wise men, they were astrologers. And I, I think that we we could point out that a lot of what you see in astrology today is is, is bunk and mythology and, and things like that. And I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't exhort you to look at it. However, God has revealed, and we see this in Scripture, that God did reveal truth through signs in the heavens, through celestial bodies, and these were individuals who were looking for it. They were looking for it, and they found it. And what's interesting here is, is that these are Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people. These aren't Israelite people. These are people who you know, are far from God. And yet... The promise of Genesis chapter 12 is that through Abraham and through his descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And so we see as the New Testament begins, that's happening, that people who are non-Jewish are coming to worship this new king. Ironically, people in Jerusalem are troubled by the fact that he's there and are not going to worship him, but here are people who are coming from a very great distance in order to worship him because of something they've seen in the sky. What did they see in the sky? The apostle John uh, years after the, the resurrection, the ascension, he wrote a book that finishes out the New Testament called Revelation. And in Revelation, John is given a vision of things past, but also things future. It's a, it's a spiritual revelation, in, in, and I want to read uh, Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 9, to you. And a great sign appeared in heaven stars, constellations. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and his head's seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, uh, has a place prepared by God in which he has been nourished for 1260 days. There's a constellation of a woman who's pregnant. There's a constellation of a red dragon who stands ready to devour the child she gives birth to. All right? Stars in the heavens, communicating a spiritual reality that actually happened. Here's Mary giving birth. She's also pictured as as Israel herself. But here's a red dragon, and who is that? It's Satan. But, But Satan is represented by earthly authority. Herod stands ready to destroy Jesus. And when he's not able to, he destroys the children of Bethlehem. You see, God is, is pulling back and, and he's revealing spiritual things that are happening here. See, our tendency at Christmas time is, is to talk about this little sweet baby Jesus lying in the manger and, and oh, how, how, how cute that is and how, how just it fills you with just warm fuzzies and lovely things. And, and I love the feeling of Christmas and just how nice it is, right? And yet, at this time, there's a spiritual war going on. You continue reading, and it says this in verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels, fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Like, there's, there's a spiritual reality that's so much bigger going on. There's something happening here. And, and, and yes, yes, enjoy the, the, the Christmas season and all it has to offer you. But take a step back for a moment and realize that what God is doing in Jesus Christ, he's not simply giving you a ticket to heaven. He's not simply giving you a get out of hell free card. He's not simply doing something that will, that will save you in the life hereafter. Like, he's doing something huge. And the whole universe is involved. There's this grand scale when we participate in what we do at Christmas time, we're participating in something incredibly big. God is giving us the gift of insight to, to seeing. Because when we can get out of our little tiny bubbles and we can stop focusing on our little tiny lives and see what else is going on that God is doing in the universe, we could have a growing care and a growing concern to be a part of what Joseph was a part of and what Mary was a part of, to be a part of God's redemptive plan for the universe. There's a gift of revelation here. Jesus, he says this in John eight, why do you not understand? He's talking to, to, to leaders. He's talking to religious authorities. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He says this in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. The dragon has representatives and you see Herod is one of those individuals. He lies and he kills and he destroys. And this is what human authority does. You see, to to recognize that behind human authority, there is a great evil at work. And yet, behind what Christ is doing, there is a great good and there is a great love. And the question is, how do you receive this king? How do you receive this gift that comes? We're going to partake of communion as we close the message this morning. And if you're sitting on the inside aisle, there's the communion trays at your knees there. You can take those out and pass them now. But what you have in communion elements is, is something quite simple. It's something quite, well, In a way, you could see it's cheap. A little tiny piece of bread, a little bit of juice in a plastic container. And yet, the things that it symbolizes are pretty powerful. The things that it symbolizes are pretty incredible. Something very beautiful. Because it points us to Jesus Jesus who gives. Jesus, God with us. He comes to give himself to us. He lives the righteous life that we can't live in order to give that life to you and to me. He exchanges it. He pours out his blood, like his body, his blood, given. You see, what you hold in your hand is a gift. It's a gift. And it may seem cheap, but it's actually quite costly what it represents. You hold in your hand the gift of God. God because he loves you, because he loves you. And the question is, how do you receive that gift? You see, I think there's a lot of us that are sort of like Christian libertarians. Let me explain that. Politically, libertarians are people who want little government, right? Government is necessary, but let's keep it small so that I can remain as much in charge of my life as I can be. Right? A lot of us are living like Christian libertarians. Let's keep the authority in the government of Jesus small so that I can have power and authority in my life. So, yeah, Jesus, I'll accept you. I'll accept your gift of forgiveness so that I cannot go to hell. I'll accept what you've done for me so that I can go to heaven. I'll I'll accept you but only so far. I'll only let you into the outer courts of my heart. I'm not going to let you inside. I'm not going to give you the throne. I'm not going to give you real authority or real power. I'm not going to let you tell me what to do with my money or what to do with my thought life or what to do with my sex life or what to do in in any courts. but you don't have access to the throne. I'll accept you but only so far. I'll receive you but only so far. Much And this gift that you've given me, thanks a lot. But it doesn't mean you get to completely reign and rule over me. We only accept it so far. I want to ask you, as you partake of communion today, you're you're, you're receiving the gift of a a God who loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you. You're receiving that gift. How, how, How deeply are you receiving it? To what level does that actually get to penetrate your life? The second thing I wanna talk about is in terms of receiving. Christmas is all about gift giving. It is. And I think you know, for, for those of you who are parents of kids, like we can go too far in gift giving. And in our, in our gift giving, maybe we do it because of, of guilt or, or maybe because we feel like we haven't done a great job as a parent or we've been absent as a parent and so we just lavish a ton of gifts on our kids extravagant, expensive, like tons of gifts on Christmas morning, right? And what we can tend to do, we could make our kids little Herods who want and they want and they want. They take and they take and they take because they don't understand the love that's behind the gift giving. I don't think that in order to express love, you have to buy expensive or many gifts. I think, though, that the gifts are important to give because you think about it. You, You have that gift on your lap on Christmas morning and you notice it's beautifully wrapped, and you notice that someone has taken the time and the care to put all that love into that, and you see a tangible expression of their love sitting in your lap, and you open up that gift, and and, and what you have is something that they have sacrificed in order to give to you, and and what you're filled with in that sense is a, a sense of joy and peace, but you know that you're loved by somebody. You know that you're deeply loved, and see, when you experience that, by receiving a gift, you know what you want to do? You want to give that kind of gift. See, I think by, by teaching our kids or giving our get, uh, good gifts to our kids, we're teaching them how to, how to receive good gifts so that they can become like Christ, so that they can give good gifts. Like the reality is, is if you're looking at your life and you would say, quite honestly, I, I'm not very loving, I'm not very kind, I'm not very gracious to the people around me, Like, I struggle with that. You're struggling with giving a gift. And at root of that, at the bottom of that, it's because you've struggled to receive the gift. If you're someone who can't give grace, it's because you haven't received grace. If you're struggling with someone who struggles to love other people, it's because you haven't understood the great love with which you've been loved with. You see, that only comes when you, when you look at this gift that you're holding in your hand. You say, Jesus, I want you. I want all of you and I want you to penetrate the deepest recesses of my life. I want you to have the very core of my being. I want there to be no off-limits places in my life. I want to give it all to you and I want to experience your love and I want to experience your grace because when you do that, you get to give grace. The gift that you receive becomes the gift that you give. And so in your time of communion this morning, ask those two questions. God, is there any part of my heart I haven't given you access to? And do I understand the depths of your love so that I can live out of it for other people? This morning is is the beginning of the last week of Advent. And the candle that we light this morning is the candle of love. It's love that we're pointed to because of what God has done for us you think about who God is what kind of God would express himself by giving you his son who is this God and what has he done for you now ask how does that change who you are does it change who you are how does it change how you get to live This morning, we light the candle of love because we have been loved by a God who has given everything, everything to have us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for what uh, you have done to redeem us. Thank you for the lengths that you have gone to show us your love. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and for laying down your life Thank you for giving us your spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us this morning of this love in which we get to live. I pray that it would penetrate our lives deeper than it ever has before. And that out of that depth of love, we would love better, love truer. Love deeper and richer, the people that are around us. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.